0: Uh, We are continuing our series in the book of Acts, uh, which is all about the first church. And when you read uh, through the book, you realize that the story of the first church is not so different from the story of many churches today. Um, At the beginning, you always start with a small group of people who gather around a singular mission. Uh, Everything's organic. There's no real structure. It's just a group of people who believe in something. Right? And there's always this honeymoon phase when it feels like nothing possible could go wrong. There's movement, there's growth, and you feel like you're a part of something special God is doing. Acts 1-3 to is that honeymoon phase for the first church. Okay? If you remember in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit shows up in this really supernatural way. Uh, people start speaking in different languages. Um, all of a sudden, like things just start happening, signs and wonders... Uh, The apostles, uh, people devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, They're sharing their possessions with each other. They're opening up their homes, breaking bread with each other. They're witnessing signs and wonders. And we read that the Lord added to their number daily. It's like the perfect church. It's kind of like, you know, what we feel when we start attending a new church, right? There's first this enchantment phase where you're like, wow, you know, like, "I, I really feel like I belong here. Um, You know, I love kind of what I'm seeing. I love the people I've met here. I love what this community is about. I feel like I'm a part of something special God is doing in my city. But that honeymoon phase at some point always comes to an end. Because at some point, you will always come up, up against some resistance or some adversity that tests whether or not you really want to be here. Somebody will disappoint you. Something will rub you the wrong way. Something will not be done exactly the way you want it to be done. And suddenly the reality of being a part of a broken, messy community starts to set in, and you're like, oh, wow, this is what I signed up for. This is what it means to be a part of a church. We experience this in marriage. You know, I love when couples tell me before they get married, you know, we never fight. And I always smile. You will. You know, there, uh, there was a time when my wife thought it was really cute that I was forgetful and absent-minded. <laughs> now that enrages her, okay? It always comes to an end at some point. But it's okay, because I tell every couple, you will not experience the beauty of marriage until you've had your first big fight. Because that's the first time you actually have to choose to love your spouse. And that's what marriage is about. And Acts 4, which we started last week, is that moment. They've been in this enchantment phase where they feel like, man, this church is amazing, nothing could go wrong, and they now get their first taste of persecution. It's their first fight when they're faced with the reality of what following Jesus is going to entail. They get thrown into jail They have to stand before the authorities, and they're given strict warnings by the establishment to keep their mouth shut. Their life, their livelihood, their families, their securities, all being threatened, and now they're like, oh, this is what it means to follow Jesus. It's not just about witnessing signs and wonders. It's not just about seeing people get healed, but it's about facing resistance and real opposition and persecution. And this is where we're picking up the story today, in Acts 4, 23. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. Uh, If you follow along on a mobile device and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. Okay, Acts 4, 23 to 31, and it's also going to be on the screen behind me. This is the reading of God's Word. On their release... Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Let me say a prayer for us as we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our Redeemer. Would you open our eyes and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so here's what's happening. Peter and John have just been released by the authorities, so they face their first persecution. They have to stand trial. They stand up for what they believe in, and now they've just been released with clear, like, threats. Like, if you don't stop doing this, we're going to come for you. Okay, so they go back to their people and they tell them everything that's, ha- that's happened, that their security, their safety, that their lives are under fire. And the first thing that the people do before they figure out a plan, before they strategize and prepare and mobilize, before they start thinking about the worst case scenario, we read that they pray. As soon as they heard what happened, we read that they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now let me ask you a question. What is your first response when you experience adversity in your life? Like, what is your first move? What's the first thing you turn to when something happens that poses a threat to your happiness, to your security, to your life? For some of us, our go-to move is escape, Uh, you know, turn on Netflix, we numb the pain, go on vacation, pretend like everything's fine. For some of us, our go-to move is panic. The moment something bad starts to happen, we start to unravel. We get super defensive, angry, uh, everything kind of can set us off, we're hypersensitive to what people say. For some of us, our go-to move is control, because when life starts to feel out of control, we do everything we can to get it back under control, and we start to adopt the mindset like, I have to fix this. Only I can handle this. If I don't do something about it, nothing's going to happen. And when, does, where, when and where does prayer fit in your paradigm? And I would say that for many of us, prayer is an afterthought. It's our last resort. It's the Hail Mary we throw up at the end of a game after we've tried everything on our own. And yet, what we see here in Acts 4 is the exact opposite. Prayer is not the last resort, it's the first resort, it's the first move. Now, obviously, in recent years, prayer has gotten a bad rap. You know what I mean? More and more people who tell me they think prayer is just a waste of time. That is just a placebo that ultimately has little to no impact on our lives. That telling someone you're gonna pray for them is basically the equivalent of telling someone good luck. Right? Feels nice for a moment and kinda of feels nice to hear it, but at the end of the day, really doesn't do much. And in this time of performative social media where it's very easy to say you're praying for something without doing anything about it, it makes sense why prayer has often been pitted against action. But you see, what I think we see in our text today is not that prayer is opposed to action. It's actually the first and necessary step to action. In verse 31, we read that after the apostles prayed for boldness, it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. They prayed for it, and then they did it. And so it's true that prayer without action is just noise, but I would suggest that action without prayer is pride. It's believing that you have what it takes on your own to fix everything that's wrong in your life and in the world. You can think about it like this. Prayer is like that huddle you have, that team meeting you have before the big game, right? Where you kind of go over the game plan. You make sure everyone knows kind of who's in charge. You make sure everyone knows uh, what their specific roles are. And so you know that going in, you kind of center yourselves, calm your nerves, calm your anxiety. You still have to play the game, You still have to go out and execute the game plan, but you try to go into that game without that initial huddle, doesn't matter how skilled you are, you are going to be eaten alive. This is what prayer is, the first and necessary step to action. The early church understood that they weren't going to be able to navigate the persecution that was coming their way without God's help. And you have to think, right? They had Peter and John on their team. These guys are veterans. Um, They're OGs. They walked with Jesus while he was alive on the earth, right? They had just witnessed these people prove that they could heal a lame man crippled from birth with the power of a word. I mean, like, you gotta think they're, you know, you would think like, these guys don't need prayer. And yet, even Peter and John know that it isn't enough. They need help from heaven. You think you're so strong and so capable and so intelligent. But I guarantee you that there will come a point in your life when you will encounter something that will expose just how weak and helpless you are. For some of us, it's a season. Parenthood is one of those seasons. Sometimes you will come up against a person Your entire life, you thought you were such a patient person, but you will come up against a person that will push your patience to its absolute limit. Sometimes you will experience a kind of grief and pain that is so heavy that it will feel like your heart is literally breaking. And in those moments, you will realize that your best efforts are not enough to fix everything that is broken in your life and in the world. Prayer is our acknowledgement that we can't do it on our own, that we don't have what it takes to face all that life will throw at us. Well, how do we pray? And in our text today, we get kind of a model for prayer. And we're really going to see that prayer is just two parts it's a plea for God's provision, and it's a piece in God's plan. Let me say that again. Prayer is really just two parts. It's a plea for God's provision, and it's a peace in God's plan. I love how pastor and author John Anwichico puts it. He says, prayer is confidence in God's ability and contentment in God's activity. It's confidence in God's ability and contentment in God's activity. On one hand, prayer is a cry for help. It's a cry for God to intervene. It's an appeal to the one who created the cosmos, and it's a belief that he can and will act according to his character. If you look at how the people begin their prayer, they say, Sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They're saying, we know who you are. We know what you're capable of doing. We know the power and the ability you have. And then in verse 29 and 30, which we're going to put up on the screen, we get their bold request. They say, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're saying, we know who you are. Now do what you do. Do what only you are capable of doing. It's a bold plea for God's provision. And let me ask you, when was the last time you prayed for God's provision? When you prayed for God to intervene, truly believing God had the power and the ability to do it. When was the last time you asked for God's help, truly knowing who it was you were asking? I feel like a lot of times we have this habit of, we feel like we have to compensate for God. Like when we pray, we're like, okay, I'm going to only pray for this much today or I'm only going to pray this prayer today because I don't know if God can handle all my requests. His inbox is pretty full, right? I'm not sure if he can like, you know, I I might have to like put this into bite-sized pieces, more manageable pieces for God because God is taking care of all the needs of the entire world. So I'm just going to pray for this. And we're afraid to pray bold prayers, but when you and I begin to understand the bigness and majesty of God, it will change the way we pray. When we begin to understand who God is, that He is the God who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, it will change the way we pray. You know, this past Tuesday we had our first Bible reading group, and I shared with our staff that I think this is one of my, like the, my most favorite things that I've done Um, as a church. And um, it's just week one. And we're basically reading through the first four chapters of Genesis. And we just started with Genesis 1, uh, the creation story. And there was a brother sitting next to me who's basically like a physics master. And so the way he read Genesis 1 was so different from the way we all read Genesis 1. And he starts talking about quantum physics and quantum entanglement And we're like all in awe, okay? And he just starts schooling us on just how minuscule we as human beings are in the grand scheme of the universe. And he said, you know, once he he started studying physics, there was a period of time when he could not even speak the word God because there, there was no way he could even speak the word God out loud because he could not wrap his mind around a being that could speak this entire universe, this entire cosmos into being with a word. This is the God we're praying to. This is the God you and I have direct access to. And so if this text teaches us anything, it's to be bold with our prayers, to cry out to the one who has the power and the ability to answer. Well, if it's a plea for God's help, the obvious next question is, what if God doesn't answer? What if he doesn't respond to our prayers the way we want him to? And that's where the second part comes in. Along with being a plea for God's provision, prayer is also a piece in God's plan. It's a deep assurance that even if God doesn't answer your prayer the way you want or expect him to, that he's still working all things For our good and his glory. You know, one of the things that confused me at first as I was reading this is why do the apostles bring up Herod and Pontius Pilate in the middle of of their prayer? Like they bring up Herod and Pontius Pilate, these are the rulers responsible for Jesus' death. In that time, they were the evidence that either God was absent or just not strong enough. Because when Jesus was nailed to the cross, Everyone thought God had left the building. Everyone assumed God had lost. They'd been praying and they'd been waiting for this promised Messiah for centuries, and they thought with Jesus, he was finally here. And then they're thinking, why then is he hanging there on that cross? In the book of Luke, we read that those who walked by the cross mocked Jesus and hurled insults at him, saying, if you are really the Son of God, come down from there. And yet Jesus stayed. And because the story didn't go the way they wanted it to, because their prayers weren't answered the way they expected or hoped, they thought God was gone. They thought God wasn't listening. But notice what it says in Acts 4, 27-28. And I'll also put this on the screen. It says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And then get this, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. At no point was God not in complete control of the situation. People thought Herod and Pontius Pilate could thwart the plans of God. Did they not know who they were dealing with? Herod and Pontius Pilate were just pawns in God's master plan. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. What looked like failure to most was actually salvation for the world. The Bible says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so by bringing up Herod and Pontius Pilate in their prayers, what the the apostles are praying is, God, we've been here before. We've been in that space where we felt like you weren't answering our prayers the way you thought, the way we thought you would, or the way we hoped you would. But just like you were in complete control then, we believe you are in complete control now. And though we may not always understand why you do what you do, we believe your ways are higher than ours. It's a peace in God's plan. It's the prayer of Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night he was crucified when he said, take this cup of suffering from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. It's a plea for God's provision. Take this cup from me. And yet it's a piece in God's plan. Yet not as I will, but as you will. I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel 3 as they're about to be thrown in the fire. And they say this in verses 17 and 18, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. It's a plea for God's provision. It's a confidence in His ability. He is able to deliver us from it, and He will. But then verse 18, but even if He does not, even if He does not, we want you to know, Your Majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. A confidence in God's ability and a contentment in God's activity. To pray, God is able and he will do it. He can do it. He absolutely will do it. But even if he does not, I will still trust him. Because God is in the business of taking what looks like a hopeless situation and using it to carry out his good and perfect plan. And when you learn to trust in God's plan for your life, you will begin to embrace resistance and opposition, not as setbacks, but as opportunities. Because you understand that these are just avenues. These are just portals through which God will show us his glory. These are just opportunities for us to experience God in new ways, to see God's genius at work. I think it's very telling that the people do not pray for God to eliminate the opposition. They don't pray for God to eliminate the threats they're facing. They don't pray that God gets rid of the opponents. You ever think about that? They have just come back from being in prison for a day. They have just come back from being hauled in front of these authorities who basically threatened them. And yet, nowhere in the prayer do they pray, God, can you just get rid of those people for us? Because they're making life really difficult. No. They're like, we saw what you did with Herod and Pontius Pilate. We saw what you did in the midst of opposition and resistance. So we're not going to pray that you get rid of these. We're not going to pray that you change our circumstances. We're going to pray that God gives us courage to speak his word amidst the threats. These are people who've been with God and they know how he operates. And they know their circumstances as dire as they are may simply be an opportunity for God to display His glory through them. And so they're like, just give us boldness. You know, every night, my kids and I, we pray for Grandma, and we pray that God can and will heal her of her cancer. And it's now been over two years since my mom's cancer diagnosis. And anyone who's ever prayed with a family member with a terminal illness can attest to this. You know that sometimes prayer feels like a losing battle. Many nights go by when you're like, is this prayer even doing anything? Is it even worth it to pray? But what experiencing this cancer journey with my mom has been teaching me is the heart of prayer reflected in Acts 4. A plea for God's provision and a peace in God's plan. The first part is very easy. We plead every night for God to heal my mom. That part is easy. The second part is really hard. But the longer you live life with God, the more you pray the more you understand that second part. And it's that second part that's actually the most transformative part. For me, I think to myself all the time as I look back at the past two years, though God has chosen not to heal my mom's disease, it's kind of crazy because several years ago, you know what my one prayer was? My plea? It was for God to heal our relationship. And it is not the way that I would have scripted it, you know, and I'm not saying that God brought cancer to my mom, but here's what I will say. What I've seen over the past few years as I've prayed for her, as I've journeyed with her through the illness, as I've spent more time with her and called called her regularly to check in on her, God has used this horrible situation to answer a prayer I forgot I even prayed a plea for God's provision, but a peace in God's plan where every resistance and every moment of opposition is an opportunity for God to reveal his glory. And so if I could trust a God who could turn something like cancer to heal my relationship with my mom, I can certainly trust God no matter what happens, no matter how he responds these pleas in this moment I love what Charles Spurgeon once said and I'm going to put it up on the screen he said God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken and when we cannot trace his hand we must trust his heart when we cannot trace God's hand we must trust God's heart Nobody could have imagined a Roman cross being at the center of God's plan to redeem and renew the world. Nobody. Nobody could have imagined a Herod and a Pontius Pilate being a part of God's sovereign will. And yet we know now on this side of the cross that God was never not in control. I imagine that in the midst of these persecution and threats, Peter and John are sitting, sitting there wondering, I don't know how this is going to turn out. All I know is that there's a lot of opposition that's on the horizon. If this is what happens after we heal one person and preach the gospel once, I know there's a lot of opposition on the horizon. But though they could not trace God's hand, they could trust God's heart. Jesus promises us, in this world there will be trouble. But he says, take heart, for I have overcome the world. This is the posture of prayer. It is equal parts, God help me because I know you can. And God, no matter what you do, I trust you because you know best. It's the heart of a child that says, Dad, can you do this for me? I know my dad can, and I know he will. But even if he doesn't, Dad knows best. That is the posture of prayer. And if we were to step into every trial and every situation in life armed with this posture, a posture of both confidence in God's ability and contentment in God's activity, I believe it would change everything. Let's pray. As we close, I want us to respond uh, very simply by praying. And I want us to pray in two parts. First, to plead for God's help his provision is there something in your life maybe you've been scared to pray about or you feel like it's too big for god i want to first invite you use this time and be honest what can this sovereign god who created the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them what can this god not do so first take a moment and cry out for God's help. And once you do that, then let's pray the more difficult part. Yet not as I will. But as you will, even if you don't, I would trust you. Sovereign Lord, you created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And so we bring all of our pleas, all of our requests, and we lay them at your feet, knowing that you can and you will answer them. We believe you have the power and the ability and the willingness to respond. For you are a father. You are a good father. But God, we also know that there are so many things we don't understand. And in those moments when you do not respond the way we expect you to or want you to, we pray for a deep contentment knowing that though we cannot trace your hand, we can trust your heart. That we would look at the cross this morning and remember that the God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, that that is the God we pray to. And so no matter what happens and no matter what our circumstances look like and no matter what opposition and suffering we're facing right now, that we would know that all of these things are things that are used by you ultimately for our good and your glory. And so we rest. We rest in your good and perfect plan for our lives and for the world. We thank you for this word. Would you give us the posture and the heart of a child this morning? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.